Section two of War the Creator by Gillette Burgess. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. War the Creator, Part Four. Yet there was a terrible earnestness about it all that sobered them. There was something still more terribly earnest ahead. Every automobile that whizzed past them, coming in hot haste from the front, announced it. Every galloping supply wagon, every crouching motorcyclist in uniform flashing by, told the same frantic story. Hurry! 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 The Germans are almost here! France is in danger! On those first nights, when Coco's turn came to stand on sentry duty by the lonely corner of a wood, his eyes strained into the darkness, listening for every sound, the sight of a bush waving in the wind, often brought his gun to his shoulder with a quick, excited, Altela! For Coco, sensitive, earnest, and not a little fearful, was in a high, nervous tension. Already the Germans were fighting in Belgium, the killing had commenced. From one of the villages they passed, the boy wrote a brave little letter to his mother on a postcard. If anything should happen, well, one knows one's duty, and God will do the rest. Lovingly, Coco. On, on through the hilly forests of Argonne they marched, making about twenty-five miles a day. And on that dusty march food was scarce. Poor Coco's feet, despite the tallow in his socks, were too sore for him to chase chickens. But Francois succeeded in capturing seven. Not much, however, when their necks were wrung, for a company of two hundred fifty men. Even the bread began to run out. But on they went, singing by day and shivering by night, on, on toward Belgium. Coco says that their chief worry was lest they shouldn't find enough straw to sleep on, or at least enough to tie up their feet in bundles to keep them warm. At Mouzon they crossed the Meuse, and here Coco slept more comfortably than he had for a week, on a sack full of straw at a farm. After a day's wait for orders, and no meat even here, they set out again, passed through Carignan, and soon reached the last village in France, Florenville. "'Don't send me any more French money,' Coco here wrote to his mother. "'It won't be any use to me now.' Poor Coco! How little did he know how soon he was to return! Part Five. On the morning of August 21 they crossed the boundary. Hurrahs from the men! They were going forward to conquer! They were going to deliver this brave little country from the barbaric invader who had laid it waste. Coco was thrilled with the nobility of their mission. "'Vive la France!' he shouted with all the rest. But alas, the approaching thunderstorm soon dampened his spirits. The rain poured down in torrents, down the back of his neck and into his shoes. Coming to a halt, they bivouacked in a wide field. It thundered and it lightened. Soaked and cheerless, the regiment tried to sleep. The fires wouldn't burn. One couldn't even smoke a cigarette. As Coco turned on his side, the water oozed under him sloshily. He dozed off, however, after a while, only to be awakened by a punch in the ribs. Listen, Francois was saying, what's that? Thunder, of course, Coco, irritated, rolled over again, 
opened his eyes after a while, and saw François still sitting up, alert. "'That's not thunder!' he exclaimed. "'Listen, it's cannonading!' Coco sat up now quickly enough. Others woke up to swear at them, and then they listened too. "'Look!' cried François. Galloping down the road came a dispatch rider. He halted, was challenged by the sentry, and turned in at the colonel's headquarters. Then he was off again, splattering, clattering through the mud. Then a bugle call. Fall in! All over the field the wet men jumped up, slung on their belts, grabbed their rifles and formed dismally in the rain. As they stood waiting, word ran down the column. Francois passed it to Coco. The enemy! An ammunition wagon drove up. Boxes of cartridges were distributed. Load! ordered the captains. The ranks were fairly buzzing now, everyone asking questions, nobody answering. A whistle blew. Forward! March! Coco had no thought of the rain now. The guns grew louder, but still no enemy was visible. The cannonading slackened, grew faint, thundered off in another direction, died, began again far away. But the rumbling was always ahead. The regiment was marching nearer and nearer the fighting. And so on to Bertix, fifteen miles from the frontier. Coco rather liked Bertix, Bertix rather more than liked Coco. The pretty little Luxembourg town welcomed him and all the other young pupus as its saviors. Nothing was too good for the French soldier boys who had come to deliver them from the Huns. What do you want? Cigarettes? Beer? Bacon? It was quite a jolly affair, with the streets full of smiling women and young girls smiling too, bringing fruit and eggs and preserves and good fresh butter. Coco was already a hero, and after eight days without meat that bacon was certainly good. How they all laughed and chattered! But the old men stood apart and listened anxiously, for through all that rejoicing there came steadily the distant sound of guns. Surely the Germans were coming nearer. If they ever got to Bertix! The old men shook their heads with foreboding. Again the whistle blew. Forward! The enemy was only a few miles away now. It was getting exciting. The boys, proud, patriotic, confident, started La Marseillaise, and the song was taken up by the whole column. Marchons! Marchons! they sang. But Coco was singing, he admits, to keep up his courage, as he tramped on through the mud to be shot at. He tried to keep in mind that he was marching on gloriously to fight for his country but he couldn't help thinking of what he had heard of those terrible machine-guns at Liège and Namur. "'Halt!' the captain whipped out his field-glasses. Everybody gazed eagerly ahead. There it was, there, coming steadily nearer, flying low, a German aeroplane, a Taube reconnoitering. There was a quick order. As the whir of the motor grew nearer, the lieutenant of Coco's platoon pointed. Aim! Fifteen rifles were thrown up, covering the monoplane. Steady now, men! Wait till she comes near enough! Now! Fire! Coco fired, jammed down the lever of his gun, shot again, again. Almost over their heads the flyer seemed to stop, turned, 
volplaned swiftly down. It was too good to be true, swept lower in a wide curve. Then men, shouting, ran for it as it swooped into the field beside the road. Coco ran for the first sight of a German. Two officers in khaki, limp and pale, were strapped to the seats. One was unconscious, with a red hole in his neck. The other painfully unfastened his strap, and came forward, staggering. He saluted the captain stiffly, a queer smile on his blond German face. Coco heard him say in perfect French, "'I am badly wounded, monsieur. This is my last trip, I'm afraid. Ah, well, you are going to beat us in the end, no doubt. With all your allies there is little hope for us. But you'll have to shed a good deal of blood before you win.' Then he suddenly collapsed. Coco saw him fall on the ground in a faint. "'It gave me a mighty queer feeling,' Coco told me to look at that dark spot of blood gradually growing bigger and bigger over that officer's breast. I remember that I wondered if it had been my rifle-ball that had wounded him. And that other German, too. I wondered if I had already killed a man. If I had, why wasn't it murder? What was the difference between war and murder, anyway? Of course these barbarians were invading my country, but, yes, it was my duty to protect France, but— well, I had to give it up. You know there are priests fighting in the ranks, too, in this war, monsieur. They must know. It's all right, I suppose. And yet there is always that but, when you see a thing like that. Well, it was too exciting then for much philosophy. You see, the cannons were getting louder all the time, and the whistle blew and we marched on again. But somehow we didn't feel much like singing any more. Near rising ground they halted. The officers hurried forward, and with field-glasses inspected the country ahead, then called the column on. Now they were actually in the danger zone, a wide expanse of fields, dotted with farms here and there, and across, a mile away, were woods, dark and sinister. It was a sunny afternoon. The odour of the damp, warm earth was clean and pungent. There were wide stretches of yellow stubble fields, where the wheat had been lately cut. Some sheaves were still standing, as if the war had interrupted the harvest, half done. As they advanced cautiously, the cannonading ceased. Somehow, to Coco, the silence was more dreadful even than that incessant muffled reverberation. But those woods yonder, what dangers were they hiding? Every eye was strained in that direction. Deploying to the left of the road, Coco's company made for a whitewashed farmhouse half a mile away across the fields. The other companies fanned out to either side. No one seemed to know just what was going to happen. Coco's lieutenant, a jolly, talkative young fellow, who had always used to keep his platoon roaring at his jokes, was now unwontedly serious and silent. Coco watched him. He marched on with his field-glasses held constantly to his eyes, tripping over roots and bushes and stones, and swearing as he went. On and on, toward that dark, mysterious wood, through beet-fields, across ditches, over hedges they went, till they came to a cross-road leading into the farm. Here they halted. Coco, nervous, apprehensive, jumped at hearing his name called out. Cucuru, Brac, Le Maitre, go forward and reconnoitre. 
Careful now, men. Part six. Coco wondered why they had to call on him, but, well, it had to be done. His duty, and he did it. With a man on either side of him, he walked forward gingerly through a field where cows were grazing, nearer and nearer that horrible wood. He didn't dare look at the ground. As he stumbled on, his eyes never left that wood, so deathly still and mysterious. Were there Germans hidden in those trees? It was his duty to find out. Brock and Lemaitre didn't falter, so Coco didn't falter. He kept right on, nearer and nearer. His one idea was the importance of first seeing the enemy. Then, suddenly, he heard a high, sharp whistling through the air, and the bullet spattered the earth viciously in front of him. A report cracked lazily out from the trees. Another whistle, another, and the pattering grew nearer. Coco dropped flat on the ground, and crawled cautiously up to a big rock and looked over the top, watching. Still nothing was visible. The balls came faster now, but he crawled warily forward, dragging himself along the ground a little further. Le Maitre yelled, "'Come on back! We've drawn their fire! That's enough!' And Coco, with his heart thumping, was glad enough to return, running for all he was worth till he had reached his company. The men were fretful and restless with excitement, nervous, exclamatory. With a high, snoring drone, a German shell came driving through the air, a boom from the woods, then a sudden, terrifying crash as of thunder let loose as it burst in the rear. Coco turned to see a volcano of black smoke and earth behind him. "'Lie down!' shouted the officers, and the men only too willingly dropped flat on the road. At first, said Coco, the men lay looking up into the air, trying to see the shells, imagining that they really could. But when the things dropped closer, they began to dodge, as if one could escape them that way. More shells came, and more, buzzing through the air in a screeching crescendo, bursting with appalling smashes nearer and nearer the line. Then a whistle blew. Forward! All along the front men jumped up, ran ahead, dropped, then rose and ran further in a long, irregular skirmish line toward that vicious wood. As they advanced, the cannonading burst into a double, triple fury, and the harsh barking of machine-guns began, and never once stopped. A hundred yards from the trees the whistle blew again to halt, and then the din grew unbearable. A crashing thunder, with shells bursting here, there, in front, behind, in continual explosion. Swept by that murderous tornado, they had to lie down and wait, and wait and wait, and wait. A scream of agony. Coco saw on his left a geyser of debris, clods of earth, stones, dust, and smoke, and two men thrown bodily upward. Another crash, nearer. He saw men's heads and torn-off limbs flying past him. Coco himself, when he rose on one knee to fire, for he was emptying his rifle madly into the wood now, was thrown down again and again by the concussion of the air. He saw sudden upheavals appear, dirt, maimed bodies, rocks, knapsacks, rifles, thrown every way, and a hole would be left big enough for a half-dozen men to take refuge in. Once he himself was buried up to his waist with flying dirt, 
His eyes were filled with dust, and he could hardly breathe. The noxious fumes of the lightite choked him. And always in his ears the incessant crash, bang, crash of the devastating, bursting shells till he couldn't think. "'Lie down! Lie down!' the officers shouted continually, but the men were now frenzied with the slaughter. They were on their knees, on their feet, shooting insanely into that secret hellish wood, screaming curses. And all the time, where was the enemy? Nobody knew. Oh, if it had only come to a reckless charge against no matter what force, it would at least have been a chance for revenge. They would have gone forward like mad dogs. But instead they had to wait, wait, wait to be killed. Coco saw his friends wounded one by one. Coco said, each man when he was hit would throw his arms up over his head, always, it was that same gesture, and then he would fall, bleeding. End of section 2